Hello, I'm Cora Hiltz, the co-founder of Rev Envers, and this is the Rev Podcast. We're going to be chatting all things having to do with a sustainable lifestyle, featuring some of the most impressive and inspiring people I've come across in my journey to date. Today, I'm speaking to the fashion designer Misha Nonu. Misha is based out of New York City and has been creating really chic, long-lasting, and timeless fashion in a sustainable way for years now. Personally, I've been wearing her husband's shirt um, nonstop for the past two weeks, and she's just released a very exciting capsule collection with the Duchess of Sussex for the Smartworks charity, which we'll chat all about. Hi, Misha. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, Cora, for having me. <laughs> so, um, very excited to grab you before you go to your wedding yes, in Rome so on soon. Friday. And I wanted to start off on just asking you about how the Misha Nonu brand evolved, how you've kind of brought it to where you are today, and, and also if sustainability was always at the forefront of what you were doing, or if it was something that has kind of evolved within the brand as you've grown, really? I started my career, I had my own label, I started it probably about eight years ago now, and um, it was, for the first five years, a fully normal kind of wholesale business. So I sold to big box retailers in the US, um, like Bergdorf's and Neiman's and people like that. And then... um, as I start to see how retail was declining in those major retailers and, and department stores, I decided to start thinking about how I went direct to consumer. In going direct to consumer, which I did three years ago, uh, it's like literally our third anniversary right now, I have learned so much, um, but it really has allowed me to have a direct conversation with my customer. Uh, we've narrowed down the collection dramatically. It used to be, when I was a wholesale brand, it used to be uh, four collections a year, so it was very seasonal. We did two runway shows, all that kind of stuff. Now we drop everything, drop product every single month, and we've just opened our first pop-up in New York City, which is very exciting. Yes, at 130 Green Street. Um, We're open from September through to December, and we did one in London in June, which was amazing as well. I loved loved the whole experience. So... um, in terms of sustainability and how that's been wrapped in, I think as I have grown up and as I have become more aware and seen how the industry is in many ways not additive, it's really um, polluting. Yeah. And I wanted to think about how I could create something that was additive, that felt as though there was versatility in design, felt as though it was something that you were going to buy better, wear longer, you know, felt as though if you were buying something that there was a need or a use behind it. And that was really where the impetus behind the brand and, you know, the renaissance of the collection came from. There's no one definition of sustainability. And this podcast is going to cover all different kinds of looking at it. And what I really have always admired is that for you, it seems like you've got a very clear vision of how your brand specifically is addressing this idea of sustainability. And I would venture to say that's a lot through the kind of made-to-order model and the idea of no waste, things like that. But can you kind of walk us through what has really dictated Mm. your ethical production? For us, one of the main things that we do from a sustainable standpoint is on-demand production. So we produce everything as it comes in, um, as orders come in. We do not produce upfront. We don't hold inventory. Um, it takes about seven to ten business days uh, for a 
product to be made from scratch and uh, delivered to the customer. And that's uh, done in our female-owned factory in uh, Shenzhen in China. Um, and the HQ of the office is in uh, Hong Kong. And my HQ is in New York. So we kind of operate a global operation between New York, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, London, you know, it's like, and, and we certainly ship all over the world. And in fact, our fourth biggest territory, you know, is... Um, us, it's, it goes, I think, the US, then Canada, then the UK, then Australia. Okay. So, um, you know, we are really very much a global brand. And um, and I suppose sustainability, you can look at it in so many different ways, but I was speaking to somebody who's extremely well, well-versed in fashion and sustainability, and she said, there is not one person yet who's ticking every single box. It's just impossible right yeah. now. We'd so, all be naked. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So she was like, you know, it's doing what you can. And I suppose we started with production and looking at how we could really think about producing sustainably. And the next thing that we're looking to tackle is going to be fabrications. Okay. So we openly talk about the fact that we use polyester in some of our fabrications. And we would like for us to be able to commit within the next 12 to 18 months in not having poly- polyester or at the very least in having a very low amount of polyester in the collection. Yeah. Um, so that's our next thing. And I think that that's the way that you have to look at sustainability is step by step how you better every aspect of your business. You know, we eradicated all plastic from our packaging um, recently. So it's just been all the different touch points of the supply chain and the customer experience and how we can make that better for them. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that's something that we talk about a lot at Rev is the idea of fabrics. And, you know, we're getting so many new innovative fabrics now. And it's almost like holding out and seeing what's kind of going to be available you know, hopefully our minds are all going to be blown very soon by what we can do with, like, plant-based things. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're all waiting for it. Exactly. Um, so you grew up in London, mm-hmm. but you have launched the brand in New York, mm-hmm. and our audience is, is very much all over the place, but how do you feel sustainability is being thought about or talked about in these two very different countries in a lot of ways? Because I feel like when I'm in New York, things are fast and people react quickly and... And it's it's great energy, but then I think in London people are very considered, and we've had David Attenborough, and I feel like there's a little bit more support in government. I mean, not enough, if I'm honest. What do you think about the kind of different markets and how living between the two is interesting to you or inspires you? Well, I think um, you know New York is not America, and yeah. we have to. We you know that, and yes. I know that. <laughs> um, the coasts are not America. And um, even some of the major metropolises that you find in the middle aren't indicative of those coasts, you know, whether that's politically, whether that's, you know, in terms of education, any of those things. So I think it's really important that we remember that New York and London are very, very similar. Even L.A. is, you know, somewhat similar in its mindset. Um, London is a tiny, tiny, tiny little island that wields enormous amounts of influence. America is enormous and wields enormous amounts of influence. So I think the UK, it's easier to affect change more quickly. Mm. And I think people have been talking about sustainability longer here than they have in the US. I think there's a lot of other issues on the agenda, healthcare being one. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have the NHS in the United Kingdom, which for all of the things that people complain about, at least you have basic healthcare provided for everybody yeah. for free. 
people are talking about things like that. People are still talking about, you know, contraception and birth rights and things like that in the United States. Oh, it's crazy. So, uh, you know, so I think that sustainability gets pushed back further on the agenda because there's a lot of other hot topics mm. that the country, because it's so enormous and so fragmented, can't quite agree on. Yeah. Um, so I think as a result, things like plastics and plastic straws and, you know, is Starbucks going to get rid of the plastic lids on its containers and things like that kind of get pushed further down the agenda. But I do feel that once people start to really consider the damage that it's doing to the environment and the planet, that the United States will have one of the greatest impacts. I just think that it's not they're not as um, then they're, they're not quite as advanced when it comes to how seriously they're taking it. It, it, That's exactly true because I feel like when America commits to something, I mean, we are going to go in... Gung-ho. Gung-ho, guns blazing, you know. But I guess, and it's something I'm kind of talking to everybody on the podcast about, is how quickly do you feel we have to move? You know, like when you're looking at the realities of climate change and things that we're dealing with as a civilization... Do you feel like we should all be moving faster? Do you feel like it's more like individuals need to be moving faster, governments need to be moving faster, or do you think that we're on the right trajectory? No, I think that oh, there's always more that can be done. And I think that it has to happen at a government level, but it also has to happen at an individual level. And people have called me out and said, well, you fly frequently and, you know, what about that carbon footprint and blah, blah, blah. And I say, okay, very good point, but, um, you know, I don't use plastic straws and I don't use plastic. I reuse any plastic that I have in my house. And, you know, how it's kind of pot calling kettle and I actually think we should all just get in it together, raise our general awareness and um, try to not point fingers, but rather look at the change that people are affecting and uh, applaud them for that. Um, So personally, I think that it happens on two different levels. I think that it happens on an individual level, doing whatever you can, wherever you can. Mm. Um, But I also think that government probably needs to step in and move a little bit faster. I think that in the UK that's happening and in the EU more quickly than it will happen in the United States for the reasons that we just talked about. Yeah. And I do think, you know, I really hate making this a feminist issue because it's not. But because we're two women with women-led businesses, I do think there's an amazing opportunity for women specifically to lift one another up and to be applauding each other for these decisions. But it seems like oftentimes there is a lot of, as you said, finger-pointing and kind of bringing each other down and how do we support and also having you know just launched this thing with the, the Dutch of Sussex and smart works well, like, yes. um, and women supporting one another in their career choices you know how can we shift our mentalities as women to being like the best thing we can do I think that you can make a choice, just like with everything, every morning when you wake up, you can make a choice that you're going to have a good day. And people always say this, that just because one bad thing happened to you, why would you let it ruin your whole day? Yeah. So say, for example, and this happens all the time, you know, like something happens and 
you know, a car comes too close to you and it splashes all over your outfit. It's been raining and you're drenched and your dog's drenched next to you and you've just poured coffee down yourself as well because <laughs> you're so shocked. You can allow yourself to laugh in that moment and be like, well, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's going to take me an extra 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever to go home or I'm going to have to run to the nearest McDonald's and like drive myself off or whatever that is. Or you can allow that to put you in a really ferociously bad mood and for that to change every aspect and perspective and lens at which you look at the rest of your day and everything that happens to you. Yeah. So I personally think that women raising each other up and and I, you know, women empowering each other, I actually see it as being women inspiring each other too. You know, I'm extremely inspired by when I read a story about a woman who's done something for another woman or a girl or any of that kind of stuff, I choose to feel inspired by it. And I also choose for that to lift me up and think, how can I do something similar as opposed to feeling jealous? Like, why didn't I get that? Yeah. I personally approach life with an abundant mindset. Um, I don't approach it with a feeling of lack. So I think that... um, it's all about choice. It's all about waking up every morning and thinking about, you know, what are you grateful for? What have you got in your life? Like, things may not be exactly the way that you want them to be just yet, but with the right mindset, you can get there. And I do think it's a matter of optimism because it feels like right now, and particularly in the UK with everything that's going on with Brexit, and it's so easy to really get depressed quite quickly or feel a little bit helpless or hopeless and what are you like what are your tips for kind of staying like empowered and moving forward and particularly as a business owner because you know I know I've done this so I'm sure you have like you've made a mistake or things have gone many mistakes you know yeah exactly like over the last <laughs> definitely not years. one yeah yeah you know but I it, wish. it's like a lot of like having to pick yourself up and start back over and that mm. can be really daunting but if we can do it in business surely we can do it when it comes to sustainability you know like surely we can pick ourselves back up but 100%. it is not everybody can maintain that sort of like optimism and like I'm getting back up I'm getting back up I'm getting back up yeah I think you have to approach life with a sense of humor um, personally I meditate every day um, I also work out yeah and um, I choose again to be kind to people yeah I choose to look at them through a lens of kindness and think about the fact that you know maybe someone's had a bad day or maybe someone hasn't been treated well or maybe something's going on at home that you don't understand and that's why they just snapped at you I think that um, the more empathy that you can carry around with you the more that it just allows you to have a bigger heart and a more accepting lens of you how you view the people that you interact with every day Um, so so I think that it's there are so many mistakes that I've made and I could go, God, I can't believe I did that or I wasted this and, you know, I shouldn't have done that. But frankly, I wouldn't be where I am today had I not made that series of choices that led to those, you could call them mistakes and failures, mm-hmm. but those things that turned around to be where I am today. And, you know, daily things happen that I'm not happy about. You know, like one day you'll have incredible sales, the next day it'll be flat. And you go, what happened? Yeah. You know, there's no, that makes zero sense to me. And, you know, particularly in retail and fashion, it's very hard to be predictive about these things. Yeah. Um, 
But I think that you have to approach it with a level head and you have to approach it with the confidence that in the end, everything will work out. Yeah. And I also think that speaking specifically to our industry of fashion and retail, you can't be in it for the short term. You have to be in it for the long term of what you are contributing. And I suppose that's also why I got into sustainability was because when I realized that this was you know, probably going to be a lifelong career, that I was thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. Not what am I doing with you know, the next three to five years? Like, what am I doing with my life? How am I contributing? Yeah. And I think that's also when women had always been at the very heart and soul of the business and why I started the business. But I think beyond women, that's where sustainability became part of it too. Because as I thought about having children and, you know, my my family, like what kind of world are they going to inherit? Well, exactly. It's something else I want to touch upon in this podcast series is like what success looks like to different people. Mm-hmm. Because the statistics are shocking what the top CEOs get paid in comparison to what, you know, the bottom factory workers are. I mean, this discrepancy is so huge Mm -hmm. and we could pin a lot of blame on a lot of, you know, very wealthy older men who've sort of dictated the terms of serious financial success for the past few decades or longer, probably. So what does sustainable success look like to you, not just personally, but with the brand and and this legacy you're talking about for, you know, future generations? Yeah. Success is a moving, changing thing, right? I mean, what success looked to me when I first started the business or even five years ago, let's say, uh, is a very different thing to what success looks like today. Yeah. You become, your appetite, once you've been satiated in one way, becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it becomes greedier, but it does mean that you think that you can affect more people potentially or that you can affect greater change. And after one positive outcome, you look for more. Mm. And it's just the way that your brain latches onto things. Um, I think the sustainable success, I don't think that anything is a straight line. Whether that's up, whether that's down, whether that's straight across, there's no such thing as a straight line. So I think you have to understand that there are always going to be peaks and troughs. And as long as you're willing, when you're having the high to recognize that the low will come mm. and that it won't be as bad as the low before. Yeah. And that that trough always gets a little bit closer to your peaks. Yeah. Um, I think that you have to kind of look at life with a sense, again, of humor and gratitude and say, you know, nothing is perfect. And I'm grateful for the fact that I'm five years later, I'm in a much better place than I was five years ago. Yeah. And just, you know, look at that in terms of legacy. I've never been someone who was in it for a quick buck. That's just not who I am as a person. You know, people who think about dollars and cents, it, it's not something that I can really speak to. But I, I think about lasting impact when I think about legacy and how we can change things. And I think that actually we're doing, the industry is changing quickly. Yeah. From when I started even, you know, eight years ago, like it's unrecognizable to what it was then. Yeah. Fashion shows and influence the way that it used to be. And it was this closed world and, you know, people didn't get the recognition that they deserved and now between you know social media is a beast and it can be a you know not a particularly nice place to live but between the platform that that has provided people to actually be given credit or recognized um, and for it to have taken away some of the um, influence that those people before had that kind of lived in this ivory tower yeah 
I think that it's made life a lot more democratic for better and for worse. So some people kind of miss the old fashion world that existed. And then other people are actually really excited about the fact that there's so much opportunity. Yeah. And I think that actually leads us really nicely into the conversation about the SmartWorks charity. I'd love to hear about it. I know that it's all about lifting up women and it's it's an amazing kind of platform to talk about exactly what we're talking about and how we can actually influence positive change through our shopping habits because I think we often think just making a purchase it can't do anything Mm -hmm. but can you kind of walk us through the the process and what this is and so it's a capsule collection um, that four uh, British retailers, me being one of them, committed to creating together. And um, the Duchess of Sussex, who is the royal patron of SmartWorks, uh, SmartWorks being a charity that works to um, help women get back into the workforce. Okay. They may have been out of the workforce for a prolonged period of time for whatever reason. Okay. The Duchess, after having been on several private visits to SmartWorks and meeting with the clients, and you know, part of the process in getting them back into the workforce is helping them prep for a job interview, and okay. then successfully getting the job through that interview. So that's dressing for the interview, coaching in the interview, and then post that, giving them a network so that they, you know, feel as though they have a network of other women who are working and people that they can be mentored by and things like that. So when the Duchess had visited on several occasions, she noticed in these dressing appointments that. Um, you know, there was a plethora of choice, but a lot of the time the choice wasn't appropriate. So she spoke specifically in her speech to the fact that, you know, there'd be 30 beautiful lilac blazers on uh, a rack. But she was like, you know, all they really needed was a black blazer, a black trouser, a yeah. white shirt and a great bag to go. Yeah. And um, she felt that she really wanted to see how um, she could put people together in order for us to all create a capsule collection uh, I did the white shirt, Jigsaw did the um, blazer and trouser, um, John Lewis did the um, tote bag, and then m did the dress. And uh, it's a one-for-one program. And it was particularly important to her. And I think this is a real way of kind of lifting women up. When you as a customer buy that shirt or buy that bag or buy that dress, you know that that exact piece is being donated to the SmartWorks client. So at the event, you know, Uh, the Duchess was wearing my shirt from the capsule collection and there were three other women in the audience who were SmartWorks clients who were wearing the same shirt. Mm. And that feeling of equality is so incredible for these ladies who you're helping. Yeah. So, and, and she said in her speech that, you know, it's not just about helping people and supporting people that we know, but what about people that we help and support that we don't even know? Yeah. So when you reach for that shirt, when you reach for that bag, you know that another woman has benefited as a result of your purchase. And it's a great equalizer. Exactly. Because I think oftentimes, you know, fashion, sustainability, all the things that we're going to talk a lot about on this, it's it kind of can be very pinpointed to a certain demographic. And that's not at all right, because this is a huge it's a global issue yeah. you know we're all in it together like climate yeah. change is going to mess all of us up or you know social inequality is going to mess all of us up it's and not... by the way one thing that we all have to do every day is get dressed exactly so you know it's, that's a pretty major way to affect change yeah and I was speaking to you just before we started on something asking you know about how the collection had been made and where it had been made and you were saying it was made in actually your female owned 
factory. factory. Yes, in Shenzhen in China. And I'd love to have you just briefly touch upon, first of all, what it means to have a female-owned factory in China and also the sort of environmental and, and re- new regulations that are happening in China because I think historically it has not been this place that we think of as being a very sustainable place to produce. Yeah. China, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I think that that's kind of an old uh, belief that China is um, not a great place to produce. But actually, um, now people have been producing in China for so many years. They brought such extraordinary technology. I mean, they have technology in China that you cannot find in America. Yeah. Um, It's amazing (laughs) the investment that they have made in their manufacturing. And, you know, their labor laws, particularly, you know, obviously in the factory that we work with, are top notch. Um, You know, when it comes to holidays and things like this, like you cannot pay somebody to, to work on a holiday for you. I mean, it's like it's a holiday and everybody is out and that's it. You know, when it comes to the hours that people work, it's totally appropriate hours. It's nine to five, like mm. you would find in a developed country like, you know, the United States. But China is all of that now. If you think about China, it's one of the superpowers of the world. Yeah. So to think that um, that workers in factories would be mistreated still or that um, they wouldn't have the same level of understanding of toxicity when it comes to dive manufacturers or facilities or things like that. I mean, you have to kind of compare China in many ways to being as evolved, even though it's happened so quickly, mm. as major developed countries around the world. Yeah, um, China just is, is not um, the place that people thought it was 30 to 40 years ago. It's an extraordinary place now. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing from people because I've been asking a lot of questions. And so how is it female-owned? Who's How does that work in terms of a business and... So um, it's a family-owned factory, and um, it had been owned by the lady who we work with, um, her mother and father. Yeah. And uh, they decided that they were going to sell the factory, and she bought it from them. And she runs it single-handedly now. And um, it's fairly extraordinary. She lives in Hong Kong, and she travels back and forth to Shenzhen almost every day and runs runs the factory for us. So, I mean, she's an amazing partner to us, and we're by a long way her biggest client. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited about all this, and we are going to end each podcast with a question from the audience. Okay, great. And the one that we chose for today was whether or not you are ever going to introduce a wider collection again, or if you will always now keep it, kind of a succinct capsule wardrobe basics. Um, look, never say never, but I think that it'll probably always kept as a capsule wardrobe. You know, it's it, the whole business predicates on the success of 10 styles right now. Yeah. Um, we have our, you know, our 10 styles that make up 85, 90% of the business. And we introduce things on a, you know, kind of monthly basis that might be more limited edition and things like that. But I always think that it'll probably be, you know, sticking to about 16 pieces that all work together so that you kind of create the basis and the foundation of your wardrobe from there. Okay, amazing. And then do you think you're going to avoid things like Fashion Week and these new drops and this kind of constant newness? Like, how are you guys combating that? I mean, you have to have some newness because obviously the customer at a certain point when she's bought six of your things is like, okay, what else? Um, So you do have to introduce newness for the customer, particularly your loyal customers. Fashion weeks and things like that, I don't think so. But I just never think that I want to get into the rhythm of chasing my tail again, where it's like, you know, we're constantly trying to keep up and design, design, design. I will always introduce things as I see them being fit and necessary for the customer. Perfect. Well, let's end on that because I love it. Thank you. Thank you, Misha. Thank you so much, Cora. (laughs) Ciao. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Rev podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and send us any comments you guys have. We'd really love to hear what you want to know more about when it comes to a sustainable lifestyle. Each week we'll be dropping a new episode, so don't forget to tune in on Tuesdays. Thank you again for listening to the Rev podcast.